Welcome to Raising Rochester. I'm Pete Navasny. Raising Rochester is brought to you by The Children's Agenda and focuses on the key issues affecting children and families in Rochester and New York State. My guest today is Tina Carney. Tina is a powerful advocate for her children and for all parents to be able to successfully advocate on behalf of their children. Among other things, Tina is a co-chair of the Monroe County Early Intervention Coordinating Council, Rock the Future School Readiness Outcomes Team, and she works with the Greater Rochester Parent Leadership Training Institute. She's also a graduate of that program. Our conversation today focuses on Tina's background, her experiences navigating different systems to get her kids the service they need, her emergence as a parent leader, and her vision for how child-serving institutions can better engage and empower parents. We also touch on recent early intervention legislation and Governor Hochul's early intervention budget proposal. Tina Carney, welcome to Raising Rochester. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. So yeah, we're going to talk a lot about your work as a, as a parent advocate, as a parent, and as a parent advocate over the course of this conversation. And so I just want to give our listeners a little sense of, of who you are, where you grew up, sort of how you spent your days, um, and then a bit about your family. So can you just kind of introduce us to, to Tina Carney? Sure. I'm Tina Carney. I'm a Pisces. I enjoy long Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> I uh, grew up in Attica, New York. Um, I'm the younger middle child, which I love that birth order, the third of four. Um, Attica, New York is Wyoming County. A lot of folks joke mm-hmm. that there's more cows than people out there, and I think that that's true. I um, graduated and went to St. Bonaventure University from there um, in the Southern Tier and studied psychology, theater, and theology. My husband uh, is Kevin, and I've known him since I was a little kid. Uh, We started dating late in high school and continued through college. We went to two different colleges. He went to Alfred State, and I went to Bonaventure. So we continued to stay connected. uh, And once I finished school, moved out to Chicago, where he was already. He went out to Arizona to um, study sound recording and engineering. And I was interested in pursuing theater. So we met in Chicago there. So we lived there for 10 years and started our family (laughs) there. So two of our kids were born. Brennan was born um, out there in 2010 and Luke in 2013. Prior to them being born, I worked in nonprofit theater as a fundraiser and uh, a teaching artist. So I taught and directed theater. After having Luke, uh, both of our families are from Attica, Darien area we decided to move back closer to this area. So we came back to, we we found a great house and a great space where Kevin can continue to do music and recording in the basement. And we could just be around more nature and outdoors and our family. And we got back here in 2014. So we've been in Chai Lai for eight years. Yeah, or it'll be close to being eight years, which sounds like a long time. And then since moving back, you've had one more child. Is that correct? Um, that is true. Oh, good, good call. The the third child. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. So Meredith is five years old. And yes, so uh, she was born uh, out here too. Yeah, that's true. And she participated in early intervention and she's currently in preschool special education. Gotcha. Um, so I'm the older of the middle children, uh, as opposed to the younger, like you are. But uh, why do you think being the younger of the middle children is uh, is the place to be? I'm just curious. I got to learn from my two older siblings and not repeat their mistakes. 
And I also, I, I wasn't the baby. So I, I was able to try to teach and share some of my wisdom, some of which I think he took, but most he likely left. <laughs> That's fine. So it was really great to have someone younger to, to hang out with. Uh, Kenny and I are, we're, we're pretty tight growing up. And uh, he's just now, his, he has a young family now too. So it's nice to reconnect and be able to talk to, with him about that too. But again, it's nice to have those older siblings to, to learn from their lived experience. Yeah, that makes some sense. Um, as the, well, as the kind of older middle child, I often got to be like the kind of co-older child, I feel like. So I got to do some things slightly ahead of the schedule that my older brother was because um, we could have grouped up like that. But Anyway, that's a bit of an aside. Uh, so uh, you mentioned um, that that Meredith has received early intervention preschool special ed services. Can you just tell a little bit about how that process got going for her and, and what your you know how you sort of got into the EI system and maybe sort of what your experiences were? Um, I think that was around 2019, correct? When you um, kind of got into the into the EI system there. So what do you recall that from that? Right. I I didn't know anything about early intervention. I didn't even know that it existed. Um, all I knew, and, and it was based on my lived experience from having two older kids that, uh, in, in some of the psychology developmental classes that I took, I, I knew some of those developmental milestones and my two older kids were, were talking pretty well by 18 months. And I had noticed that she just, she didn't have that language explosion. It, it, it wasn't there. So I, I just kept my eye on it. And when I, I remember it was her well child visit, I mentioned it to her pediatrician and her pediatrician kind of had this like, oh, like pained expression yeah. on her face when I mentioned that. And she goes, well, you could refer her to early intervention, but there's a, a huge weight. Uh, I'd advise that you go through your insurance. And at that time I was like, well, what do you, what is early intervention? Like I didn't know really, uh, but, and, and also to see on my provider's face that like, uh, it, it, it just, I, I immediately picked up that there's an issue, like there's a bigger issue going on here. And so I, I called the insurance or um, I think we, we connected with uh, step-by-step pediatrics and went through that route and did uh, some evaluating there. And I also called early intervention because I also didn't know that I could do both. And I can't even remember if it was somebody from the county I talked to when I referred her, or if it was somebody from the insurance that said, well, you can do both. And I went, oh, well, good to know. Yeah. Uh, so I, I did move forward on both because I wanted to know the process and I wanted to kind of see, well, what's the difference and what is the system and how does this go? So that was, uh, yeah, our initial kind of intro. And, and they came out and did the evaluation, EI did, in our home. And I'm like, well, this is really amazing. Like, I didn't yeah. have to travel anywhere. They're comfortable. We're in our living room. We're on the floor playing. This is, this is amazing. She passed all her tests. Everything was fine. Um, but sitting around with the care coordinator and the other therapist who tested, and they're just like, ugh. I, I see what you're saying. Like, yeah, she on paper, it's she's there. And yet, I, yeah, the, the pragmatic language, the spontaneous, it's just not there. So yeah. they they qualified her from their professional judgment, um, okay. which I appreciate. And then from there, it was several months before she um, got her uh, therapist. 
I know you know this, but for people who are listening, the sort of the, the requirement of the EI program is that, you know, it's a free available to everyone um, qualifies program in, in New York state. There's no fees or co-pays or anything like that. Um, it's sort of a universal program for those kids who meet certain criteria. Um, and uh, according to the, to the, the program and the, our plan with the federal government and all this, you know, the, it's a complicated system, but kids are supposed to start receiving all the services that they qualify for that's developed as part of their plan within 30 days. Um, and that's sort of the expectations of the program and, and what keeps the program in compliance with the Federal Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA. Um, so the fact that, that Meredith had to wait a couple months was, I mean, obviously it must've been pretty upsetting for you knowing that your child needs these services and, and can't get them, but it's also in violation of, of sort of the, um, the parameters of the program and, and how it's governed under, under federal law. So it's a big deal if there's a shortage of, of service providers and kids aren't getting the, the services that they, that they need and that they're, they're entitled to. So how did that feel when you were in that waiting period? I guess you were getting some services through step-by-step at, at, their, at their site, at their clinic there, but what was your sort of like sense of, of, yeah, of how that felt or how you saw some progress or not during that period from those other services? Like, what was, what was that like, I guess, during that sort of, that really kind of, I would think upsetting uh, uh, waiting period? It was really frustrating to know that, you know, she had these needs and there's this really great program, right? Like this, like, yeah. They're this really great intent, these really great folks, and it's just not being able to put those things together. Like this exists and my kid needs it and it's not available. And I I am privileged to be able to, like she has insurance. So we could go out and get her some services at least to start with. And the other place we went to was Nazareth has a clinic out there. So Mm -hmm. thankfully I have a car and I had the time I could take her out and we could do that as well. So we tried to piece things together, but like that affected our entire family. It took time out of my day to do that. And Sometimes my other kids had to come with me too, or, but like when your kid just has a need that just comes first, like these are some foundational skills and developments that just, she was in that stage of life where her brain was most able to make the changes that would like stay with her for the rest of her life. There's that Mm -hmm. short zero to three, you know, age. So, um, having to wait meant that like, it, it just, yeah, I have anxiety and I, I had more anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Understandably. Yeah. And obviously, as you said, you, you did what you could, but you know, a lot of families aren't in a position where they are able to access those, those private services, get their kid to, to Nazareth, all that. And that's where the, the, the shortage of therapists for the program, particularly at that time, you know, really disproportionately harms um, certain families in certain parts of our community. Uh, and um, others are able to kind of cobble together what they can. It's not perfect, but it's, um, when I saw some like waitlist maps and things like that back then. It was, it was predominantly concentrated in black and brown neighborhoods in the, in the city that were on waitlists. Um, and, you know, we know from car ownership statistics and all sorts of other things that a lot of families in those neighborhoods would struggle to be able to access some of those other supports as opposed to someone into their home. And so, yeah, so then once, um, once Meredith started getting started, how long, I guess, were you, you said a couple months on the wait list? Um, yes. And what, sort of, what sort of changes did you see once she started actually receiving some, some early intervention services? 
was it effective i guess would be the, the easy question yeah i i think yeah it was and it was just wonderful to be able to have uh gina come in and and to get to know like really our entire family and like it it's just it really is like I, I heard stories about how 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 like the therapist becomes a part of your families because they're in your family, like they're in your home. It's yeah. you're not going somewhere, going so. And she just was so wonderful with navigate because sometimes my other kids were home and sometimes they weren't, and the way that she just so masterfully could kind of like weave them in and out of it sometimes, or it's like okay, you can play with this toy. Well, I have to do this with Meredith right now. And it just was really wonderful also as a parent to see the strategies that she used and the techniques that I could then continue with her as we move forward to. And that's very different from um, a school-based special education where it's very much like, okay, the parent isn't there. But this really is, and I think like in your, it's moving more to, it's a parent coaching model. So it's, it's, it's showing parents like, okay, this is what we're gonna try to work on today. This is one, two, three, or the different techniques that we could then work on when they're gone which is most of the time they're not yeah. around, they're not here. So it, it's really helpful. Yeah, I know from having spoken to other people like who are receiving OT or, or occupational therapy, physical therapy, um, and I'm sure you know, it goes for, for speech as well, having that therapist coming to the house and seeing the layout and what, you, what toys and, and furniture and things like that that are available, it allows them to really like customize that, that plan so that you can just incorporate you know, whatever the activity is into you know, playtime or whatever, when they're not there. And I think you're, yeah, you're exactly right. That's, that's sort of the beauty of the, of the early intervention program is that it's in the home and it's, it's helping parents, you know, who are the primary caregivers, obviously, um, incorporate some of these lessons. It's a, it's a great aspect of the program that, yeah, you don't see as, as kids get older, um, for, you know, some good reason they're in school and all that, but yeah, it's a, it's a really kind of special model there in the, in the EI. Um, so, so then she also, she transitioned when she turned three, correct, into the, into the preschool special ed uh, program. And during all of this, there was a worldwide um, pandemic that's disrupted some things. So how was that, that transition to, to preschool special ed? Did you switch therapists? Did she start receiving services uh, elsewhere? Like what, what happened, I guess, as, as she got a little bit older and continued to receive speech therapy? Yeah, that pandemic, I, I forgot about that <laughs> for a minute, for a minute I did. So what happened was, let me see, she was done with EI. Was the pandemic still, did that happen while she transitioned or was she already transitioned? She was already transitioned. Okay. That's, um. so we, and that was close. All of my kids have kind of been like borderline. They haven't been obvious, like, yes, this yeah. kid needs services, we're doing it. And that has been tricky to navigate to know that like, mm, there's, there's some the pieces here that need to be addressed. Oh, but you don't quite qualify or yeah. it's, well, okay, let's try this. That's been yeah. really hard to navigate. So what happened is uh, I think while we were transitioning in uh, her therapist did like the day before our CSC meeting, she came over to the house and did this pragmatic screen and she sent an addendum to to the district and to the committee to say like there there is some pragmatic so again you're not seeing it on the paper like she has made gains but there are yeah. still some serious concerns here and that is what it had she not done that she i don't think she would have qualified yeah uh, 
so we transitioned and we went to a group therapy setting because because we all agreed that like it would be really great for her to be with her peers and to see that modeling because a lot of kids often kind of pick up from that and while she does have older brothers Mm -hmm. um they're not the same age as her so we did that for a little while and then the pandemic happened so then we transitioned to this the zoom and that was really hard that Mm -hmm. wasn't working for her but what did work is I finally clicked and um, I channeled back to EI and what worked best with us is if I took some toys and started modeling and doing some work that I remembered from EI while the therapist watched us from Zoom okay. and could coach side coach me a little bit. But just having those, oh, here, point to the red one, open the red one or yeah. like that was not working for her. That wasn't it. So the virtual um, wasn't a great option for us. And because I had gotten more involved and met more parents, I went to this really great parents as partners training in Buffalo before she started receiving EI services. And I recommend this training to anybody. It's only for parents who are uh, currently have a child in EI and it's offered think quarterly or so in different regions in New York state. Mm -hmm. It was a day and a half training. They, it was free. They put us up in a hotel, they fed us and it was all about EI. And that's where I learned about the local early intervention coordinating council. And they uh, encouraged parents to participate there and to share. And it was going to that training where, and and, and again, I, I went into this, like going, why do you want to train me about a program that I want to take and participate in? And mm-hmm. it's not available to my kid, yes. but I got there and I read the room and the other parents had services, like everything yeah. was okay. But I also read the facilitators faces. Like I, I, they just kind of do a blanket, like invitate. I didn't get the direct invitation. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine from Wyoming County was like, oh, you're interested in EI. Maybe you want to come with me. So she's yeah. the one that told me about it gotcha. um, and got me in. So it was from there that I realized that, oh, again, this just isn't, there's something going on here. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how I got connected with the LEICC. And this year I'm a co-chair of that group in Monroe County. And I've just been working to try to get more parents involved in that and to try to, to create more change and to make things better about the system from, from that group. Yeah, we're going to get into a lot of that and a lot of the, your involvement in various sort of parent advocacy activities in a bit. Um, just to kind of close some of the loop, though. So how so Meredith is she's still in preschool special ed or is she is she, in she is. transition? To, OK, so she'll be going so to kindergarten in the fall. Okay. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. And she and how is she doing now with her speech? Um, it's it's still continuing to do very well. So it's fantastic. Like, I I think she's definitely catching up to the curve now, being in with a whole bunch of peers and fantastic teachers and her therapist. I miss not being in the room. Like they do show and tell and all of that. So I really would love to be a fly on the wall, but that's just like, it's COVID times and we're just not there. So we still see some, some concerns at home, but she's definitely made gains. I'm I'm not sure if she'll continue to qualify moving forward because again, it's always been on the line, but she's definitely gaining. Yeah. And that is a challenge I think for our our systems that you have. I mean, I suppose you have to draw a line somewhere, right? Of who qualifies and who doesn't and different States are able to kind of set some different criteria, but 
there's always kids who are going to be like near eligible on one side of the line or the other. And we don't really have a great system, I guess, in, in New York state to, to be able to, you know, provide some, some additional support to those kids who don't qualify formally, but are, but clearly are, they're developmentally not fully on track the way that some of their, their peers might be, or have some, some additional need that isn't incredibly high need, but it's still like it needs addressing. Right. And that's one of the frustrations I've, you know, having spoken to some people and just sort of encountered it out there in the world that we need more gradations, I guess, of services than like a yes, no. And if you're yes, you get a bunch of things according to your need. If it's no, well, hopefully there's some, something you can access and, and, you know, your teacher might be able to do some individual work with you and, and recognize certain things, but it's not the same as a sort of a structured approach with a, a individualized plan and, and all that. So anyway, that's, it's good that you qualified just on that other side of the line and have, but, but yeah, I could see um, some concern if, you know, when she enters kindergarten, if she still has some, some challenges there, but is on the other side of that, of that, you know, line that we have to draw, I guess. Yeah. And I understand that too, like, cause, cause you're right. There needs to be a line. I, I completely understand that too, but I don't want, especially parents to know what I want them to know is that like, there still are resources available yeah. and that like to, to trust your gut. Like, yeah. is it you see something or if there's just something that seems off, I've learned a lot from just connecting with other parents in terms of like what resources have worked for them, what their lived experience has been like. And, and there, there are resources out there, but they're just not necessarily explicitly packaged up like EI is mm-hmm. or, or, or preschool special education. Yeah. Yeah. But I have found with my school age kids, um, we're uh, just reaching out to every school has an OTPT speech. Um, there are some, there's a possibility if you just ask, and I have yeah. asked, like I have some current concerns about my middle guy, Luke's handwriting. So I recently reached out and said, Hey, like, would you look at this grip or what do you think yeah. about this? And they r- still came back with resources and things. I'm like, again, what can I do at home? What can we yeah. do? They've always been very generous with, with, uh, with resources and yeah. have appreciated when I do reach out. Yeah. And that's, that's great. And it's great that they're available there for that sort of consultation, you know, work, um, to help, you know, help you, obviously, um, your oldest child also has, is receiving some, some special ed services, correct? For plan. Sure. So yeah. Brennan, uh, is 11 and he's in sixth grade. So gosh, it was around the same time as Mare was having issues with speech too. I've, since he was young, four or five years old in UPK have always had been concerned about reading, writing some literacy skills mm-hmm. and I've always had my eye on that all the way up every year was asking, how are we doing? What's going on? Well, I'll give him some time. Maybe he'll catch up. We'll see how things are going. And I'm like, this just doesn't seem right to me. Yeah. Uh, he's not rhyming. He loves stories, loves listening to stories, gets confused with his left from his right. Isn't just picking up and reading stories himself though, but loves stories and loves being read to and loves audiobooks and talks about amazing things. His UPK teacher, I remember she referred him to special education because, uh, and years later, kind of talking with her because we're still connected, had said, I'm like, well, what was it? Like, why did you, what kind of made you think that there was something going on? She goes, 
he was talking about things like the Titanic and Mm -hmm. other higher level things that most kids that age don't. So seeing the difference between like, and and, and having troubles with, didn't know all the letters or the sounds and things like that. Yeah. So we went through that process before we went through the process with Meredith. So that was our first time going through a CSE and and hearing this evaluation was just as a parent, I just felt like shocked and scared and unsure about, well, gosh, what's wrong with my kid? What did I do? Or what's wrong? Like what's going on? And that was the first time of going through evaluations and, and talking with therapists and all of that and going to a CSE meeting where there's a bunch of people, most of whom you've never seen before yeah. wearing suits and sitting around a table talking about your kid. And most of them haven't likely even met your kid. Yeah. So it's a really weird process when mm-hmm. you're not used to it. And it was, it was intimidating to be at that yeah. table, but my son's teacher was there. So that gave me some support and, and yeah. confidence and all of that. Uh, he was found to not be eligible for services and just kind of continued on. So we, we still had our concerns and I knew third grade is about the time where it ships from learning to read to reading to learn. And um, I had learned again from talking with other parents and I connected with Starbridge a group that I learned from a friend uh, from PLTI. And we'll talk about that in PLTI a little mm-hmm. bit later too, I'm yep. sure. But like the folks that, again, I, I've just learned so much from other parents that have helped me help my kids and have changed their lives for the better moving forward. So mm-hmm. he was evaluated in second grade and again, saw some issues, but not quite enough to, um, to qualify we had some outside evaluations done that indicated language-based learning disabilities and ADHD. And then it all made sense. Finally, it was like, okay, this is the answer. Took that information back to the school. Again, the school's like, no, he doesn't, he's doing fine with general education. He doesn't, he doesn't meet the need for it. So again, another frustrating part of the system of the process. So our options were to remediate outside of school or wait for him to fail and qualify for special education. Mm-hmm. So we decided to, and then COVID happened. Uh, so we, I tutored him during COVID using an explicit systematic multisensory program designed for parents to give to their kids um, because most of these programs and this knowledge isn't available in, in most schools, um, and also applied to the Rochester Children's Dyslexia Center at that time. Uh, they typically have a two-year wait list and they, they closed at least for a little bit because they funding had some funding issues. So I tutored him for, from March, the closure through September. And then he started with the Dyslexia Center and he's in his second and final year with the Dyslexia Center this year. The testing that they did showed that what I was doing really worked and he made a lot of gains from that. So it was fantastic. Like it was really hard to be his tutor and his mom, but it worked and we got through it. Yeah. But again, just another frustrating. And did he yell at me and be mad at me sometimes? Yeah. Is Mm -hmm. he still frustrated that he has to go to the dyslexia center uh, Webster twice a week? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, mm. And I keep reminding him that like, we advocate, we've spoken at board of education meetings. Yeah. We've asked them to learn more. We've asked them to lean in on this. He's even spoken up and said, I just want teachers to know what it's like for me and what I'm going through. Yeah. And I'm like, ideally this would be offered for you at school, but it's not. So I'm sorry. <laughs> like, yeah. It's really hard to be the parent to see your kid struggling to know that something is available. It's the same thing for Meredith to know that things are available, that there's a solution there, that there's something there, yeah. but to have so many barriers to get it, to connect to it. It's very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sure, I'm sure it is. Uh, and, and at the same time, I, I you know, I, was, I think every, every listener of this will appreciate, you know, their hats off to you for, um, really diving into this and figuring out uh, on your own kind of all, all of these different approaches and, and acting as that tutor. And, and, and then to see the, the gains that he's made from that is, um, yeah, it's really a, a testament to your commitment. Um, and obviously every parent wants to do everything they can for, for their kids um, to help them. And it's, it's great that you were able to kind of immerse yourself in that world to, to be able to provide that support to him when, when other things weren't available. You're obviously much more well-versed in, in this world than I am in terms of, of strategies to, to help children with, with dyslexia learn. But hopefully your, your school district sees the light at some point and, and other school districts do as well um, to figure out how to meet the needs of all kids within their, within their walls. So you've spoken a bit. I mean, obviously you're an incredible advocate for your children and, and you know, parent advocate on that individual basis, but we've sort of alluded a few times, you've also become increasingly involved in broader advocacy around whether it was for, you know, early intervention, obviously you've done some things within your, your school district there. And there's, within the advocacy world, there's like individual advocacy, get your kid the services that they need, figure out how that's going to work. And then there's this sort of broader advocacy around how do we try to change some of these systems to better meet the needs of kids and families in our community. So how did you get into sort of that, you mentioned about the local early intervention coordinating um, council there. Um, was that your first sort of like engagement in, you know, parent advocacy at sort of a systems level or did you have other, I guess, how'd you get involved in that world would be the, the short question I'm trying to ask. Yeah, I, um, so I, as I mentioned before, I did that training through um, yeah. the partners in training. So that's where I learned about the LEICC but prior to that, so I participated in the Greater Rochester Parent Leadership Training Institute, and it's a free 21-week program that trains parents how to be, gives them the skills and the knowledge and the networking tools to activate them and to activate their advocacy. And it was within that training in that group where I just, I gained a lot more confidence mm -hmm. and met a lot of more amazing people from the area who are just all interested and focused on making our communities just a better place for our kids. We know our kids best and we uh, will we'll do whatever we can for them whenever we can for them uh, to, to, to help make things to move things forward. So that that really kind of I think helped like I said, I, I gain more confidence. I gain more networking. They're enablers. <laughs> they really is. So even yeah. from that, every once in a while, you know, I have a question about something. They're like, mm, I don't know about that. Or oh, maybe you should check this out. This is what it's like in my district. Yeah. Or 
what it's like in, in, in my experience. So it's been really great to have a great group of people with a uh, diverse background from all over the the, Roche, the greater Rochester area to, to lend their lived experience and their voice. So it was even from there when I learned about the LAICC, you know, everyone in PLTI thinks that parents need to be involved wherever their kids are involved. We need yeah. to have a seat at that table. So I learned about the LAICC and I shared it with a PLTI alum um, and, and got a few more folks from there. To, I said, well, here's a table. We need to show up. So if you yeah. participate in EI or preschool come on in here and, and and a few came so we were able to last year I thought you know it'd be pretty great if we did an EI awareness month and everybody on the council was like yeah that sounds like a good idea just figure out a plan how are we going to do that yeah. I was like I'm just a parent <laughs> okay <laughs> I'll, uh, I, I did some event planning in my nonprofit fundraising days in the yeah. theater and all of that. So I, that was a parent led event and people said, okay. So last September was the first time we had it. And it was just because I was like, well, let's just have an awareness month. And they were mm -hmm. like, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. Uh, it, it just has been great to be a part of a group of, there are providers at that table and county folks and community members and parents and, and just all coming together. I just love that. I love when people can come together with their diverse backgrounds and perspectives and their specialties to, to just have the space and to have the table to say, these are my needs. This is what's going well. These are bright spots. These are, these are places where we need help. Um, so how can we as a collective kind of like lean in on this and figure out how to make things better? So that's one area that, that I leaned in a little bit more because Meredith had those needs because I don't want more parents to go through what our family has gone through when it comes mm -hmm. to early intervention or speech or when it comes to literacy and dyslexia. I'm mm -hmm. just very concerned um, for those parents who don't know what they don't know about these things. And when they see these struggles, when they see that, and sometimes you will hear, hear from folks, well, maybe they'll catch up or give them time. No, I, I really am of the of, of the opinion that parents really truly need to trust their guts mm -hmm. and to, and to speak up about, about their needs. Yeah. And that, that early intervention awareness month uh, was this past September. I don't know if there's one planned for next September or what's in the works, but it was a, it was a great success. Um, and I don't know who designed the t-shirts for it, but it was a great t-shirt. Uh, my daughter likes it a lot. It's, uh, it's got a rainbow on it and um, a bird that she always points to. This is my, my two-year-old and this is the yelling bird at me. Uh, when she sees it, so uh, it's a early bird gets the worm. Right. Yeah. No. It was, it was great, and I think it brought uh, it, it succeeded in its goal, like kind of raising awareness around this, and um, you know, it was proclaimed by the county, and it was you know, it was a good, good way to raise attention on the early intervention system, which you and I are like you know immersed in, but but most people aren't aware of. You know, it's it's those families that have encountered it uh, find that it's um, an incredible support for them and their their young children when services are available, uh, which is always the caveat, I guess. Um, but it'd be good for, for more people to be aware of it, the, the existence out there. And because you never know how exactly who knows what and, you know, can make a referral for their friend or something. And, and just building that attention to, to such a critical support, I think, is a really, really important thing to do. Your work on the LEICC, a lot of work, Parents Helping Parents Coalition of Monroe County and the Children's Agenda and the Kids Can't Wait campaign. We were all pushing for um, some changes to the early intervention system, which we've sort of talked around um, this, this shortage that you encountered um, when Meredith was first deemed eligible for the program. But 
for years in Monroe County leading up to, I think, you know, 2017, 2018 is when it really got more acute. We just have, a, we've had a shortage of therapists um, that particularly, uh, well, all, I think all therapy types, but, but speech, um, occupational therapy, physical therapy, special ed, itinerant teachers, but there's other services too. Those are kind of the big categories where um, it was becoming harder and harder for the county when they would, you know, a kid would qualify to identify a, a therapist or, or several therapists to work with that, that child. And there's, there's a lot that's kind of gone into that. There's, we may not have enough you know, programs locally to help therapists get qualified to, to work in the program. We've had some agency closures, things like that. We've had expansion, I think, of, of programs that in school settings, you know, for school-age kids that may have drawn some people from the early intervention system. But a key piece of it, and the Children's Agenda, we did this report in 2017, um, a lot of it comes down to the fact that early intervention therapists hadn't gotten a raise um, since the mid-90s, like on a per child, per unit basis, when they bill for a service um, they're actually making, because there were cuts in, in, um, in the Great Recession, they're actually making less per unit of service now than they did, you know, 20 something years ago. And you start to factor in inflation and all that. It's, it's really driven a lot of people from, from the field. And then on top of that, there's a really complicated sort of billing and payment process for, uh, for these therapists. So a lot of independent people who worked, you know, on their own ended up leaving the early intervention system because it was too much to deal with the sort of the claims and reimbursement process. And then a lot of the agencies had to hire additional sort of administrative staff, which, which caused them to not be able to pay as much to the, to the frontline therapists. Right. And so there's a, you know, that, that's probably been building for years, but it really got acute in again, 2017, 2018, 2019 um, pre-pandemic when we had waiting lists of at points like, you know, 100 some odd kids approaching 200 children waiting for services at, at, a, at a given point. And it caused, I mean, there was a lot of attention on it um, as, as an issue here locally. And, and talking to people from elsewhere in the state, you know, we learned that it's a problem up in other parts of the state. It might not have been as big of a problem elsewhere as it was here, but there are certainly children in, in all parts of the state, the Southern Tier and, um, you know, the Capital District and, and Long Island that are, you know, it's, it's, it's a struggle to get these services. And again, Rates aren't everything, but it's certainly something. And so anyway, so that, that's sort of the context, I think, for a lot of what was happening in the system at the time. It had just been neglected by, by the state, by the, the sort of the setting of funding levels for, for the program. So one strategy to start to address that um, was this thing called a covered lives assessment. And that's something that people have been pushing for for, for at least a few years now. Um, do you want to just... in plain terms, I guess, explain you know, what, what Covered Lives is and what it was intended to do and then and what happened with it over the course of the past year? Sure. I learned about Covered Lives through a fellow parent leader, Kim Dewar, who um, you interviewed uh, earlier on in your series here. Yep. And she just kind of kept coming to the table. I remember her saying, she's like, how about covered lives? How about covered lives? Yeah. How about covered lives? Okay, I'll write something. I'll, I'll, or, you know, what what can we do? It's just um, yeah. the, the idea is that, from my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that um, insurance companies, private insurance companies, have a bit of a responsibility and uh, to, to fund some of early intervention. And that hasn't yeah. really been happening. So covered lives would go back to them and establish, like get some more, the more funding funds from them. And it would also 
make the process just easier. There's just so many yeah. barriers. Like it's the paperwork. It's the logistics of it's, well, no, this is denied. No, it's no, no, no. Here's the money for it. Use it, go. So yeah. it's kind of um, making the process a, a little bit better. And, and it was, it was passed um, this year which is incredible. I wasn't sure how that was going to go. And I'm curious to kind of see how the, what the unintended consequences or how that's going to look kind of moving forward. There's still some yeah. questions about the funding and the money and how much is actually going to it versus not mm. the bureaucracy. Like when it comes to New York and anything, or maybe it's all government in general, it's just, it's, it's a lot to wrap your head around to really understand. Um, well, yes, you're okay. You're getting this money. Well, okay. Yeah. But how much are we really getting? and where and when. So there's still more questions, yeah. at least the, the folks in the LEICC are, um, are chewing on and, and wondering about too. So, but it definitely is a win. And yeah. I think COVID helped. Like it, it just, there are just more kids, I think that are gonna need more help even in Meredith's preschool. Mm -hmm. You know, her director had told me like they do a screening at the beginning of the year. Yeah. Uh, about kids and their development and all that and she this is the first year with the kids coming back this year that it's been so much lower and so many more kids are um in need than ever before yeah so it's just more blatantly obvious that we have to do something because we have this whole court of cohort of children who who are who are in need yeah we're gonna see that play itself out over you know a long time period so it's it's best if we uh do everything we can and pour resources in to support them, you know, while they're, while they're young and kids of all ages, I think, have, you know, really, really had a lot of struggles, a lot of challenges over the last, you know, two years um, that we've been dealing with this. So um, certainly affecting young children and various developmental concerns. And, uh, and then with older kids, we're seeing a lot of real, you know, mental health issues and such. So there's a lot there. Um, but I actually, you did a great job summarizing covered lives because it's, I mean, it's this term that like, what, what does that mean? You know, but yeah, the, the general idea is instead of insurance companies paying out on a per child basis uh, in which there is all this like denial and, and resubmission of paperwork and pre-approval and all the stuff that makes the American health system so frustrating, um, then instead of paying on that per child basis, they kind of collectively pay into a, into a pot. And then that money, um, it, that absolves them of the responsibility to pay on an individual child basis if it's that they're covering that particular child um, and um, it just simplifies the process. Now it's like they either, it's either paid for out of Medicaid if the child, once this is implemented, paid for out of Medicaid or paid for out of this covered lives plus county dollars plus state dollar like pot of, of funding that, um, that supports the entire early intervention program. But we don't know yet when it will be implemented. We don't know how exactly they're going to hopefully streamline the billing process. Um, so that there are a lot of unknowns. One thing that we do know that's that's not a success at this point, but we're we're working on it, is that the hope of a lot of people in the advocacy world, parent groups, things like that, was that this covered lives assessment was $40 million. And what we want is for that money to be reinvested entirely into the early intervention program to support raising rates for, for therapists, which as we talked about a little while ago, a lot of these therapists haven't gotten a raise in years. Um, there was a small 5% rate increase for a couple of um, service categories a few years ago, but broadly there's, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a need for a lot more. Um, and so the hope has been that that $40 million would get added to the early intervention system. Um, but the uh, Governor Hochul, who, is, who has been a champion of, of, of kids with special needs and, and um, is doing some other things that are, that are really good for 
for these schools that, uh, that serve um, kids with special needs did not propose reinvesting that money into the EI system. So instead, it's kind of going into the general fund or absolving counties and the states of, of some of their obligations to, to fund the EI program. So that's where advocate, the next steps of advocacy are, you know, we're hoping that the legislature, um, the assembly and the Senate really, you know, insist that that money not be kind of lost to the general spending of New York state, but instead is put into the EI system to support a rate increase. And what, what we're calling for is I sort of alluded to just a moment ago. So last year in the, in the budget, the, um, the overall school system, public schools um, have received a 11% increase in, in foundation aid funding over the course of time here. And then that was, um, that was a big push for there to be parity for these, these special act school districts, which are schools like Mary Cariola here in Rochester that serve kids with really significant needs. Uh, there was a push to kind of ensure that they got that same kind of increase. And the governor has proposed that as part of her budget. Um, so preschool special ed, school age special ed, these, these special schools, um, we're hopefully going to get that 11% in the final budget. Uh, what we'd like to see is the early intervention system get that same 11% as well, because they, the, the fear is there's a limited pool of people. We need to grow the pool of therapists and all that. But when you start raising rates in one system, which we need to do, because we need to ensure that these schools stay viable, you know, does that end up harming another system that employs very similarly qualified people, right? And so we need to like lift all boats here. Um, so leaving the early intervention system out when you're increasing public school spending or increasing spending on these special schools could, you know, have the unfortunate side effect of causing more therapists to leave the EI program, which is the exact opposite of what we want to happen. So we really need to make sure that, that there's that parity with the early intervention system this, this spring too. Um, and so the children's agenda is going to be doing a lot of advocacy on that over the course of the next couple of months until the, until the budget is finalized. And, and hopefully we can, um, you know, we can see that success because Covered Lives was good, but we got to use that money in the right place in the right places to support the early intervention system. Yeah, it's just anyway. not over. Like advocacy just doesn't stop. That's yeah. what I've learned on my advocacy journey is that, okay, great, great. We got this bill. Great. Okay. What's next? Because there is a more, more. like the yeah. devil is in the details and yeah. it's, it moves towards, okay, great. Well, then that was, that was one step. What's the next step? It's yeah. more of the, right. It's just like what you said. It's how is this being spent? Is it going to be spent? And it's being that accountability holder to see how, how things work out. And it's just, it's important for people to continue to speak up and, and it's important for groups like the t children's agenda to continue to keep us informed about the progress about this. It's really hard for parents to, parents are having a hard time right now, especially given the pandemic. Yeah. Um, all parents are stressed and they are exhausted and the pandemic has made it even worse. So um, it, it, I, I think it's always important for us to lift our voices, but these barriers and these situations make it even more challenging. So to just be aware of that, to acknowledge that and to keep us informed um, as, as best as possible and, and continue with those call to actions as we move forward, because this has still been a learning curve. I've met with um, assembly member Bronson about dyslexia, about, about um, that, that was interesting. <laughs> this is the first time I'd never done that before. Again, PLTI mm -hmm. gave me the courage and the information about just, well, go and do it. These people work for us, these elected officials that yeah. we elect. They're here for us and they don't know what they don't know either. So we need to keep talking and we need to keep that 
conversation going um, and, and try to bring more folks in to, to, to make that a, a bigger voice too. But I think a lot of people have mistrust in the systems and the governments and all kinds of things that they just kind of tune out. Um, and I'm, I'm really hoping, and, and I try to just turn that around. I, I really try to tell parents that they have more power than they know of. And it's, it's just important to, to speak up and, and to work together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's probably a good place for us to wrap up unless you have any other, um, are there any other questions I should have asked you um, to, to touch on today or, or anything else you'd like to, to kind of share with those folks who listen to this? Well, I just, uh, no, this is, this has been really great. Thanks for having this. And um, it's been great for, I enjoy listening to other parent leaders who have been on the show so far too, and continue to anyone who works with a parent to continue to still work with them. I think a parent, meaningful parent engagement, um, if, if we really take the time to stop and listen to hear what parents need for their kids, I think it's going to completely change our communities and, and our systems. So parents use their voice, people who work for parents, please lean in and, and listen to their voice and see what we can do to work together. Yeah. That's what I would say. Yeah. And you're certainly doing a lot to, to, to push that forward, Tina. So thanks for all the, all the work you're doing to advocate for parents, to get parents a, a seat at that table um, and to, to push people in positions of power to, to cede some of that power sometimes and, and, um, and give parents that space to, because they, again, as you, as you said, you know, parents often have a gut sense of what's right for their, their kids. And we need to, to find ways to, to incorporate that gut sense into, into how we make policy, how we practice things um, and not put up walls between systems um, and families. So Thank you for all for all you're doing, um, and thank you for joining the the show today and, and for your kind words about it. Um, it's been fun to to be able to record these conversations. With Thanks. Likewise, so much. anytime. Thanks so much for joining me today on Raising Rochester. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and family, including on social media, and feel free to send feedback or show ideas to me at Pete at thechildrensagenda.org. Until next time, on behalf of The Children's Agenda, I'm Pete Bosley.